ignition switches. On. RPM switches. Set. TD switches. Normal. Doors and hatches. Closed. Lay down. Strobe light. On. Restart check is complete. Clear left. Engineer. Start number two. Starting two. Wing 31010, pilot project podcast. Clear takeoff from Wing 31 left. All right, we're ready for departure here at the Pilot Project Podcast, the best source for stories and advice from the pilots of the RCAF, brought to you by Skies Magazine and RCAF Today. I'm your host, Brian Morrison. With me today is my buddy from flight training days, Rich McDougall. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. All right, before we get started, we'll go over Rich's bio. Rich grew up in Dieppe, New Brunswick, and joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 2006 while attending the Université de Moncton under the regular officer training program. After receiving his wings in 2011, Rich was posted to 435 Transport and Rescue Squadron in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where he flew the CC-130H Hercules. While posted to 435 Squadron, he conducted NORAD and air refueling missions around the globe as tanker commander and instructor pilot. In 2017, Rich was posted to two Canadian Forces Flight Training School to instruct on the CT-156 Harvard II aircraft. Rich joined the Snowbirds in 2019, flying as Snowbird 11 during Op Inspiration in 2020. After a lengthy recovery, Rich joined the team again for the 2022 airshow season. He is with the team again for the 2023 season and acting as advance and safety pilot. Rich has over 2,500 military flying hours. So we've known each other for quite a while. Yeah, We were trying to piece this together, but I think we met on land survival training. I think so. Yeah. I have no idea the answer to this though. So where did flying begin for you? Well, I started with the cadet program. I knew I wanted to fly through the cadet program before joining so there was a bit of a strategic move where i lived in dieppe in moncton area and there's like well there's two or three huge you know 100 member cadet squadrons there so okay. i said if you just go to a small town you know 20 minutes away you might have a higher odds of getting you know a flying scholarship so we i took that advice and for six years i just took a bit of a further drive to my cadet unit in sackville new brunswick okay and went through the the steps to get my glider license there with a few good friends ashley Gadette, who's here today uh you know as glider set and then we were again on the power course at the moncton flight college there then joined the forces in 2008 did my phase one here in portage 2010 started my phase two in moose jaw and onto the King Air here in 2011 for my wings. And then that's where the military part of the career kind of started, so. So you're another guy that started out on Air Cadets. A-Firm, yeah. There's so many of us. Yeah. It's like amazing the number of people that join the military and join the military as pilots through Air Cadets. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find your flight training experience in the forces? I loved it. I think military flying training is pretty unique and it's really neat being able to do, you know, right into, military type low-level navigation aerobatics formation flying yeah totally i loved all of it did you have any setbacks absolutely yeah. yeah you know you get the odd test failure and you know you're on phase two every flight matters your score matters and you get a test failure and you're like oh no my career's over 100 but i think that's one of those things that everyone has to go through to realize you know you can have a bunch of bumps in the road and still get to have an amazing career and get to go where you want to go right so did you have any tools that you used to get through those those times? Just to not stress about it. Try to think, okay, every flight, you know, wake up every day as though it's a new day. Yeah. And okay, today's a new flight. Let's go out and do what I know how to do. Yeah. 
you know, if I'm worrying about what happened yesterday, it's not going to help with today. So just concentrate on, on this flight kind of thing. So you ended up as a tanker pilot on the Herc. Was that what you were hoping to get? Not at all. So I think that's <laughs> another lesson that I got is that, you know, sometimes you get sent to an airframe or a community that you weren't expecting. And then when you get there, you realize that it's, you know, the best squadron in the CF is the feeling that, uh, that I had. And, you know, I think that happens to a lot of people. You get to your, your first unit, your new unit, and there's no bad cockpit in the CF. There's no bad squadron, you know, every squadron has a unique role and contributes differently to the greater picture. So I definitely feel like I won the lottery from uh, going to 435 and flying the H model and doing the search and rescue OTU. So did all the search and rescue training. Mm -hmm. And then the moment I got to the unit immediately started all the air to air refueling flying. So it was just the coolest six years. I loved it. So at 435, because they are a rescue and tanker squadron, do you specialize in one or the other, or do you do both? You generally do, and it's changed every couple of years. You can either be dual qualified. They did like to stream members into one or the other because it's two complete different training plans. So I mainly just did tanking. And at the end, I started doing some search and rescue training just prior to moving on to Moose Jaw okay. on, the, on the harbor there. So Very cool. Yeah. So how did you end up on the Snowbirds? Was that a lifelong goal or something that just formed along the way? Yeah, it's something I always wanted to do from being you know 12 14 years old going to air shows and just any time that the snowbirds were coming into moncton you know where i lived you could see aircraft going to the airport so we'd always hop in the car drive to the fence and and see what was going on so i feel like it started there and then in 2014 a good friend of mine on squadron then moved on to the snowbirds so as soon as that started it was one of those things where i wanted to apply so, yeah okay how do i work with you next year yeah and we went through the process and uh, basically to apply to do the role that I'm doing now. And in discussion with the CO, it was just best for my career to finish my, you know, tanker commander qualification mm-hmm. prior to moving on to something else. So basically applied and then kind of retracted my application yeah. for a later date. So, yeah. And that's just because it's generally viewed as best if a pilot finishes their upgrade process on their first posting. A firm. Yeah. So I ended up staying on squadron for another three years after upgrading, and that was the best way to do it. I was going to ask if you were glad that that was the advice that you got and that you took that. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then moving on to two years on the Harvard instructing at the big two on phase two, phase two and phase three. And, you know, the snowbirds are on the other side of the ramp. So you're a lot closer and, you know, you see a lot of your own instructors moving on to the team and you're like, okay, I, I think I could do that. And that's when the, the interest reignited of like, okay, let's just, let's apply this year. Yeah. Even like a year before I thought I would apply. It's like, okay, let's just put my name in this year and see what happens. Yeah. And And it worked out on the first year. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I just did this interview with Blake and he was telling me about how basically when you try out, they might say, thanks for coming. Mm -hmm. They might say you're in, or they might say not this year, but come back. Yeah, exactly. And so on your first year, you got in. Yeah. And Blake McNaughton is also another big reason why I'm on the team. I feel like he, you know, poked me a couple of times of like, okay, yeah, you should probably uh, put your name in. This would be a good time. So that's funny. He had a very similar story about someone doing that for him. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, mentorship, man, it gets passed down. Absolutely. Yeah. He's the super snowbird. Yeah. I love Blake. Yeah. He was one of my instructors at Moose Jaws. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's very cool to see where he's been and, and where he's going. 
How did you find the tryout process to make the team? I loved it. Yeah? It's very unique. It's very stressful. It's designed to be stressful, I think. But it was pretty cool to have never flown the jet. And your very first flight in the jet, you're flying in formation. So your first takeoff is a stream takeoff. So you're doing your own takeoff. But you immediately rejoin with another aircraft, another a tutor. And then every flight after that is a formation takeoff and a formation landing. So they really, uh, you know, you barely learn enough about the jet to fly it. It's more about, okay, can you taxi it, take off, fly form, land? It's really just to assess how you're doing and, you know, what your learning curve, I guess, mm-hmm. is. It's a good thing that you had been doing the instructing at the time then and already doing formation flying regularly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think without that, I guess the recency of just being on an airframe that you're flying form a lot, I think it would be more difficult in the tryout, but, uh, you know, everybody is different. You might pop in there and just be, uh, be a rock star and it would just flow naturally. Right. So yeah, some people are just superstars. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I did all right. Yeah. What kind of person makes a great snowbird? I think you can divide it into two parts. You know, you have to be technically good at your job, good at the flying aspect. And then there's the whole public relations aspect of like, are you, how are you going to be in a crowd? How are you going to interact with the public, you know, at the autograph line or interviews, that kind of thing. So So you have to be a people person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that part is uh, just as important as the flying or the maintaining and the, the technical aspect of it. Yeah, it's funny because I think for a lot of people, that's easy to forget that you guys are a PR team. You're a public relations team. That's your mission. Exactly. And so that interaction piece is so huge for you folks. Exactly. Yeah. When do you think is the right time to try out for the Snowbirds? I think the right time to try out for the Snowbirds is after, you know, complete your first tour on another airframe and then apply because you really want to have, you know, a base of experience prior to, uh, to coming in. You also need an ejection seat tour. Mm -hmm. So you either have to be coming in from the fighter community or you need to have had an instructional tour on the Harvard of the Hawk kind of thing. I didn't realize that. I thought you had to have ejection seat experience. So I thought going through as a student on the Harvard was enough, but you actually need to spend some time instructing. I'll have to look at the... uh, Oh no, you're probably right. The loading message. It might be worded differently, but I think the idea is that you want to have, you know, generally more than your seven formation flights and uh, your phase two on the Harvard. It's much better if you have instructed for a couple of years first Mm -hmm. or flown something else. I think anybody can do the job. I think if you have that recency, you're just going to catch on way quicker and uh, it certainly helps. What about time in life do you think there's a best time in life to kind of go for it i don't think so i think we have some of our pilots in their late 20s and into your late 40s there's quite the range of uh yeah i don't think there's a a good time it's whatever the best time is for you i think okay i like that yeah so you mentioned this a little bit when we talked about who makes a good snowbird yeah You mentioned that proficiency is important. And then you said it's important that you're either a good pilot or a good technician. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about the relationship between pilots and technicians on the Snowbirds? Absolutely. I think it, uh, it really reminds me of my H model Herc days, you know, where you're flying with a variety of trades in your crew and where at the end of the day, you're traveling as a family, you know, the rank relationship is 
non-existent in, in a way. You're all there to do a job. And, you know, the maintainer aspect is the most important part. So at the end of the day, I feel like it's their aircraft and they loan it to us for one hour at a time for mm -hmm. us to do uh, our job. It's very important. We rely heavily on our technicians. Yeah. Do you find that you form some pretty close friendships through that? Very much so. Yeah. When you transit, they fly with you? Generally speaking, yeah. We now have a support aircraft, so we're able to carry extra personnel. But generally, the idea is that you would have 11 aircraft on the road with 10 technicians and your public affairs officer occupying all 22 uh, seats in the air. Yeah. That's awesome. What does the advanced and safety pilot job entail? Well, the safety pilot aspect is what Snowbird 10 and 11 do at show center where you're on the radios. You've got four radios. You've got your UHF, VHF, you're monitoring the Bosphorus frequency. You have a secondary. When you say boss, you're talking the air boss of an air show. So boss Snowbird one. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And also the air boss. So that's a, another frequency as well. Yeah. And the air boss for listeners is like the coordinator of the air show, right? They're basically, it's almost like air traffic control gives the air boss the airspace. Okay. So during that four or five hour window, the air boss controls the air. Okay. And for our 30 to 40 minute portion of the show, the air boss basically gives the safety pilot the airspace. Okay. So they act as a little bit like a mini boss. And part of our training is that we do the air boss course as oh, well. Oh, very cool. And it's all about monitoring the radios. It's about helping with, you know, certain smoke errors or anything that might benefit the formation to, to speak up for the show. Can you give me an example of that? Well, very often. So we have two, we have two smoke tanks. So the most obvious one is that they, you know, each member switches partway through the show. So if one member is puffing, you know, if they're running out of smoke, it would be the safety pilot's job to say, okay, six puffing, and then they would switch you know, sometimes okay. inverted mid maneuver, it's pretty slick when it's done properly like that. So that's very cool. And we're also there with our checklists. If there was any need to, to deal with any sort of uh, red page or yellow page emergency. Okay. And then we would uh, clear the airspace and assist as required. Okay. My role this year being the, the narrator, you're kind of monitoring what Snowbird 10 is doing but you're also the connection to the audience. So if something is going on that is not part of the regular show, you'd be able to communicate that to the audience as well. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you have like an announcer voice that you use? 100%. Introduce the snowbirds for me with your announcer voice. Oh, goodness. Well, I would say, uh, good afternoon, Portage La Prairie. Your 2023 Canadian Forces Snowbirds. Uh, and then kind of move on with the, the rest of the script from there. But awesome. <laughs> anyway, that was that's going to make me sound funny. But no, you're good. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. So tell me about the advanced portion of the job. That's really kind of the meat and potatoes of, of what Snowbird 10 and 11 do. In a way, we're kind of like the band manager, the tour manager. And in a way, if I want to put a tie into like the music industry, when it just comes to coordinating with air traffic control, show sites, hotels, cars as required, even the advanced part, it would be just being ahead of the rest of the formation by an hour or two to make sure that everything's squared away on site prior to the rest of the team's arrival. Yeah, we, we kind of oversee everything to make sure that we have a smooth show season. Yeah. 
So I would imagine that that takes a certain type of person to do that and do it well. Attention to detail. Yeah. Someone who enjoys helping others. Am I on the right track with that? Yeah. Like, I feel like some people's personalities wouldn't be well suited to, to doing that. It's similar to being an, an opso in a way, you know, you're monitoring all the pieces of the puzzle. You're juggling uh, everything that's being thrown at you. You make sure that it all falls into place at the right time. Does the advanced and safety pilot go through the same tryout process? I think it depends on the individual. I think some members will go through the tryout process and the tryout process is all about seeing where people are best suited. Okay. But there also have been members who have been brought in specifically for the advanced and safety pilot where you wouldn't have to do that tryout. Okay. But you would have your own conversion course to fly the jet and, you know, to, to fly the formation bits as well. So you can get headhunted basically exactly. as the advanced and safety pilot? Affirm, yeah. Very cool. Can the advanced and safety pilot act as a backup if, say, one of the main members are sick or unavailable to fly for some reason? The way I like to answer this question is that everyone in the formation from 1 to 11 is trained to do their specific job Okay, where it would be very difficult for any member to be taken out and for someone else to just switch to do their job, whether right. it's flying or aspects on the ground. Everyone's trained to do their role. I guess your routines are so intricate that it would yeah. be extremely difficult. You would have to know every single pilot's yeah. job throughout the show. It, it, probably not be very safe <laughs> to exactly to yeah. try to do that and to just fill in exactly yeah. okay the advantage is that we also fly the extra jets so the spare jets so if anything aircraft related prior to the show were to happen we are able to have our jets be part of the show with the appropriate pilot for that position okay yeah. if that happens do they renumber them or does 11 go in the show 11 would go in the show yeah. okay yeah 10 or 11 yeah, yeah right on What's a day in the life of a snowbird pilot? And let's divide that into training and the show season, because I know that those must be super different times. Okay. Training season, the team is booked for two to three flights per day. It depends on the week, depends what the ops and maintenance schedule looks like for that week. But I think if you were to go, the 100% push would be two main formation flights per day, plus one solo or any other member of the squadron that needs an extra flight for like an IRT or, or something like that. Right. And for the listeners, an IRT is your yearly instrument qualification. Exactly. Flight. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a lot. So you would, you would aim for 10 formation training flights per week for the, the team, but, uh, prairie winters, uh, do get in the way of that. Yeah, so of course. that's a, that's a rarity to get all 10 or anything close to that really. So. I want to loop back to what you were saying about two to three flights per day, just so the audience can appreciate how intense that is, because you folks aren't just doing straight and level or, you know, you're going to do some transits, obviously, for training and currency. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what you're doing is really intense, pulling G, mm -hmm. constant concentration and high intensity. You must be exhausted by the end of the day. Yeah. And you think of each flight you have you know, likely an hour, sometimes more of a brief and debrief yep. on top of the, the one hour, 1.5 hour flight that you did. So each flight takes up a large chunk of your day. So if you're flying twice or three times, you're in for a long day. Yeah. That's amazing. That must be just exhausting. 
but I bet it's a good exhaustion because if you're there, like yeah. nobody gets on the snowbirds without being passionate about being in the snowbirds. Affirm. So you're doing what you love all day. Exactly. And then you sleep really well at night because yeah. yeah, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> That's training. What about the show season? The show season. So we basically train from November until the end of March or until Easter weekend. And the goal is to generally around that time of year, go to Comox for three weeks to then put the show together, if you will, with the same type of training schedule. So you're looking at two flights per day or three if, if you need. And during that three week period, we'll aim to leave with a completed show to then present as the home opener back in Moose Jaw or sometimes in Comox as well. Okay. Who designs the show? I believe it's the boss. Generally, I think everyone has input on what could happen, but really it's the boss's vision that puts the show together. Snowbird One. Yeah. And I imagine Snowbird One is always somebody who's been on the team for a while and has the experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And once we do our acceptance show, your traditional year, you know, we haven't had a normal year in the last uh, four years due yep. to COVID and everything else. But generally speaking, the Snowbirds would do a weekend show and a Wednesday show. So you would on Tuesday transit to your Wednesday show, do your show on Wednesday. On Thursday, transit to your weekend show and practice Friday, show Saturday, show Sunday. And then Monday is your maintenance day slash day off. And the cycle goes on from basically May till October. So from May to October, you're getting about one day off a week. Generally speaking, this year's a little bit different. We're not doing midweeks. So we're getting a day or two extra at each show site, which really helps with you know public outreach. So that would have been a bit of an intense schedule for that amount of time. Uh, and generally we do get one weekend off in the summer as well for uh, kind of your leave week. Okay. Yeah. It sounds intense. Yeah. And that goes all the way up to your season closer, you know, mid or end October and right into the training for the next year. So it takes all 12 months to keep the cycle going. So uh, it's, it's never, never much of a break and it's never a dull moment. It's great. So speaking of that yearly cycle, is it a new tryout every single year or like do members who are already on the team, do they have to try out again to be on the team the next year? Or how does that work? No, nope. once you're on the team, the tryout is aimed at finding new members for uh, the formation for the team. And, uh, you know, if you only find one pilot that's suitable, that's who you're going to get for that year. So everyone else would remain on, in the formation kind of thing. And then you could, in theory, have up to four new pilots uh, as well. So, you know, kind of half, half of the show formation. Okay. Yep. What did you find was the hardest part of being on the Snowbirds when you first started? I'm going to have to think about that because honestly, it's, uh, it's definitely not easy, but I think the, everything we do within the Snowbirds is a bit of a challenge. And I think I love that challenge. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard for me to think of something that's hard because I think I just love that. <laughs> you like the hard stuff. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then, because my follow-up is always, how did you overcome that? So what keeps you excited to keep doing the hard stuff? You know, I'll draw a parallel to every show or practice we do, we record it. Mm -hmm. So during the debrief, we're always looking at what errors were made and the, the goal is to just always do better on the mm -hmm. next flight. So I think your question was how to overcome or how to, how to deal with those challenges. I think you're always just trying to get better. 
So I think that's what you're focusing on. So every flight that you do, every experience you have is a great lesson to be better the next show, the next flight, the next interaction, the next brief, whatever it is. So I think the overcoming part is just the motivation part of striving for excellence. You know? <laughs> it reminds me of the description of tryouts, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's something they instill in you from day one yeah. is be better, be better. Yeah. Always improve. Affirm. What would you say is your most memorable flight in the Snowbirds? My most memorable flight, I think I always say, is a flight I did with Jen during Op Inspiration, where we were leaving Nova Scotia to overfly PEI. The main formation was could overfly PEI, then recover in Moncton for a, a fuel stop. So Jen and I took off after the formation. We went over to PEI, kind of overflew the bridge, then came back. I overflew Sackville, New Brunswick, my old cadet town. Very cool. Was able to smoke one jet over the city, a circle or two, and then head up towards Moncton. And uh, just that route basically overflew the road that I grew up on. So I was able to overfly my house and overfly the city of Moncton, Dieppe, and land in Moncton where I did all of my private pilot training at the Moncton Flight College. And, you know, it's op inspiration. It was early in the op inspiration, but we land and there was probably 200 people at the fence there to, to watch us uh, just refuel, do our thing and take off again. And, you know, my parents were there, my brother was there and it was my mom's birthday. So it's just oh, one wow. of, there's just a lot of elements there that's like, you know, I got to overfly my house, my old cadet town. Yeah. That's my most memorable flight of my career. I think. That's so cool. Yeah. It was a good memory. How neat is it to be back at the airport where you were just struggling to fly a single engine prop? Yeah. You know what I mean? When you're a brand new baby pilot trying to remember your checklist and stuff and then to be back there, who would have thought you would be back there as a snowbird? Yeah. And, you know, we had Moncton and Dieppe was one of our show sites this year. So I kind of had that moment again where we're parked at the ramp right next to the Moncton Flight College. The Moncton Flight College were basically our, our hosts there. So it's 2023. I did my private license in 2003. So 20 years after uh, having started flying at MFC there, pretty cool to be bringing the team back to where it all started for me, you know, and to watch kids on the other side of the fence there was like, okay, that, you know, 25 years ago, that was me. That might be another snowbird. Yeah, exactly. So what's the craziest situation you've had to deal with as the advanced and safety pilot? I feel like there's a, there's always crazy situations coordination wise. I think one, one crazy situation would have been, it was in Kamloops the day before the accident, you know, Jen and I land ahead of the team, the team lands, I had coordinated everywhere we go. We need oxygen. We need diesel. So a lot of these sort of non-standard requests for, for a lot of aircraft that go in operating out of, uh, FBOs. And for the listeners, FBO is. Uh, actually, I don't know what FBO stands for. Fixed base operator. Oh, there you go. Fixed base operator. It's basically a gas station for airplanes. Yeah. If you uh, if you have your own aircraft, uh, that's where you gas up your plane. Yeah. And park. Yeah. And get hangar space or whatever you need. And uh, I think the the weird part is that it's Kamloops is not the biggest airport. There aren't that many providers of these services. And there was one hangar, one provider that could provide our oxygen and diesel 
but it wasn't where we got our fuel. And it's like, if we parked on their part of the ramp, they could bill us for parking. We take up a lot of room. So we ended up just parking on the main apron. And as soon as we landed, he was like, well, you guys didn't park on my ramp. So I was like, oh, no, yeah, no apologies. We, we need to park here, unfortunately. And then that person then proceeded to, to hang up the phone, not bring us our oxygen or nitrogen or diesel. No. So we're basically now stuck at that airport because we need all of those elements to take off the next day. So then I'm trying to phone him back. You know, he left the airfield. He was not happy with us that we didn't oh, park geez. on his ramp. So there was a, a misunderstanding there, obviously. Exactly. And uh, he was not willing to help us out. So I had to call other airports. We had to have um, oxygen and nitrogen trucked in from two hours away in other airports. So it was a very exciting evening of trying no. to put all that together so that we could leave the next day. So that was uh, stressful and, and rewarding when it all worked out too. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually legit crazy yeah yeah it's, it's not a flying story it's not a but i, I was just so surprised of like uh oh well we we now can't leave here so how do i how do i fix this well that's exactly <laughs> the kind of story i was hoping for though is yeah. i wanted to know i'm sure you folks deal with all kinds of unexpected wrinkles in plans and yeah. uh logistics and all kinds of different things yeah that was one of them <laughs> Normally, we ask what your hardest day was in the RCAF, but you and I both know the answer to that. After the crash of Stalker 22 and with Canadians everywhere struggling during the COVID-19 lockdowns, the Snowbirds began a cross-country tour of Fly Pass to raise the country's spirits as part of Operation Inspiration. You mentioned a crash. On May 17, 2020 in Kamloops, BC, the tutor in which Rich and Team Public Affairs Officer Jen Casey were taking off hit a bird, leading to a low-level ejection. Jen did not survive. How did that day start for you? Well, that day started, I think, with a walk through the park to adjacent to our hotel. And, you know, we grabbed some nitro cold brews and headed to the FBO. I think we were planning to overfly Kamloops and other areas, but the weather just wasn't going to cooperate with us that day. So we just all went to the FBO. It was more, it wasn't IFR, but it was a, more of a lower cloud day. So we kind of just knocked our plan off and just decided to go directly to Comox. So um, we're all there at the FBO planning for that. And then uh, Major Wicket, who was flying the other aircraft, and you know myself and Jen uh, and one of our maintainers were heading out to the aircraft to depart You know, an hour or so before the, the rest of the formation. And that's the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, so just a normal morning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you take us through that takeoff and your experiences through the following events? Yeah. So I'll go through it as, uh, as well as I can, you know, there still are elements that are, that haven't fully come back. So there's like, you know, chunks of the flight that are, um, more of an image than a, mm -hmm. than a memory, but yeah, it was just a, a normal takeoff. I was number two. So, uh, you know, so number 10 is leading. So, you know, I'm not looking ahead. Your eyes are glued, uh, you know, to the right for me to, to the lead aircraft. Yeah. And just if I could just jump in for a moment yep. for listeners who haven't flown formation before, there's a lead plane and anyone who's not the lead is just staring at the person they need to keep station on. Um, they're making all their adjustments based on what the other person does mm -hmm. with power and control. And they aren't looking anywhere else, but at that other plane. That's right. So we're on the 
takeoff roll to take off, you know, we clean up the aircraft and it's pretty much at the gear up, flaps up, confirmation, you know, literally at the end of the runway, you know, the departure end of the runway at, you know, around 160 knots and 100 feet off the ground, which is not, that's not very fast for our aircraft, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, I just kind of felt it almost kind of felt like an explosion in a mm-hmm. way, like it was a, a very large bang and rumbling sound. And I, I didn't see, it was a very small bird. I didn't see it uh, from the angle that I was looking, but Jen yelled the word bird. And uh, at that point, you go through your, your red page checklist response items. And basically what you're just looking to do at that point is exchange kinetic energy for potential energy so you want to exchange whatever airspeed you have for whatever altitude you can get so you're kind of zooming straight ahead you know slightly away from lead because the moment you're away from lead you don't know where they are so Mm -hmm. for safety you want to create a little bit of a a buffer and at that point i'm just the moment it happened you know you're just at 100 feet i just kind of see a bunch of roofs of houses in front of me and even in just that like half second as the impact had just happened, I already kind of saw a, a change in my energy vector where it was like, okay, well, immediately it looked like it was about to plow through like five, six houses kind mm. of thing. So I was like, okay, well, you know, evidently I don't want to do that. So I want to, you know, I know that there's more of a field to the left. There's, you know, not a neighborhood everywhere. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to try to deviate slightly left. And at this point, did you know, like the engine's gone? I knew I wasn't getting, you know, thrust yeah. or effective thrust. Mm-hmm. And from talking to, to the lead, he basically said, it literally looked like you just started going backwards. Like yeah. it was just an immediate. Just a loss of power. And at that point, I, there's probably, you know, three, four seconds that I, I still don't remember at all. But I do remember the point at which we needed to get out of the aircraft and we were very low level and then when it came to the point of getting out of the aircraft for myself i just remember you know an entire second went by where you think that's not a lot of time but it's almost like time froze for a moment where i didn't feel the seat i didn't feel the parachute i just kind of felt like i was tumbling through the air and it was just kind of a it was kind of a you know that's it moment it's like okay well i'm i'm just falling you know <laughs> So had you, you've already pulled the handles. And, yeah, exactly. And what did that feel like when you pulled those? I remember from speaking with people who had ejected previously and, and recently what they had described. So it's interesting what goes through your mind and, you know, 0.1 second of, uh, as you're actioning something. But I remember the, the thought of like, okay, well, I'm going to want to watch what's going on. Like well, the intent was to you know, your, your eyes are open. You want to pay attention so you can report back what you're seeing. And all of that is gone. Like, I just literally remember being out of the aircraft yeah. uh, at that point. Like I remember reaching down and I remember being out. Of the and then aircraft. you're out of the aircraft. Exactly. Wow. I don't remember the, the ejection force at all. And after what felt like tumbling for a bit, I do remember the feeling of, you know, a parachute unraveling or something going into the, the airstream that was you know, starting to slow me down. So I remember, okay, the parachute's opening. So 
we all did our training. Uh, a lot, a lot of the pilots in the forest did their training, ejection seat training with uh, Mario. Mm-hmm. So I remember, okay, look up and see if you have a canopy or what you have. And I just remember sort of fabric kind of moving away from me or fabric behind me is like, okay, something is starting to action. So you could see the parachute, but you didn't have a canopy deployed. I, I can't even say that I saw the parachute. I think I just saw stuff moving okay. backward kind of thing or stuff behind me. And then your next thought is, okay, I need to look down and see what's going on below me. And I just looked down and it's like, didn't even take half a second. It was like, oh, that's a roof. And just boom. Like I just remember looking down and colliding with the roof. Yeah. So I collided in the seated position and I still had my seat pack on that's attached. Yeah. You know, it's like a fiberglass box that you're sitting on with a bunch of survival equipment and a raft, uh, et cetera. And I remember everything very clearly after that. So before we jump into that, yeah. at that point, like you eject. Yeah. Jen ejects. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any idea where each other are? Or it's no. just boom, you're you on your separate trajectories. You and... have no you have no concept of where you're going. So yeah. you have no concept of whatever else is happening around you for sure. So you you've hit the roof. Yeah. And what happens next? Well, it's you know, uh, it's emotional to think about it because it was a pretty traumatic event, uh, but it was just excruciating pain. It was just mm-hmm. instant. Like it just felt like I had broken every bone in my body. It just felt like I had just shattered my entire back. I definitely felt like I had just shattered my feet. So I just remember screaming, you know, I, uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, a few seconds later, you're like, okay, all right, I catch my breath, but then it's like, okay, no, I'm just going to keep screaming because I had the essay. I was like, okay, well, if I'm making noise, someone will know that I'm here. Mm-hmm. I also remember a little bit of the parachute kind of draping over my head. I didn't know if I could move at that point. So just from first aid training and having, you know, my mom is a physiotherapist and hearing about a bunch of trauma situations. Previously, I was like, okay, I'm going to wiggle my toes, wiggle my fingers, you know, am I paralyzed? I was like, no, I can, I can wiggle everything. Okay. But I was kind of like, you know, arms bent. I didn't really want to move anything because everything hurt. So I kind of just used my, move my wrist to kind of try to pull the parachute away from my face. Because I do remember hearing the other jet flying above me. So I was like, okay, I'd like to see, or like, maybe if I'm moving a bit, he'll know that I'm okay. And then it was almost immediately that someone was on the roof with me in my face asking me you know, if I'm okay, you know. This is like a civilian? Yeah, like in the neighborhood. And I believe they were a first, an off-duty first responder. Wow. So immediately I had all the right people with me. And within two, three minutes, I already had two other squadron members on the roof with me. So just because it was so close to the airport. It must have been good, though, to see some familiar faces at that point. Yeah, it was it was almost confusing. It was like, what are you what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> so immediately you're able to have a bit of smile on your face and kind of forget what just happened. So that right there was a lifesaver for those people to be there on the roof with me. And they were with me. You know, one of them was with me all the way that to that evening uh, in the hospital. So. Mm-hmm. I remember the the fire crew had come onto the roof. You know, they cut everything off of your body. They cut your boots off. You know, they tried to remove the boots and by untying, I was like, nope, <laughs> it's like you're, you're not doing that. Just so they too, just too cut painful. Every, oh yeah. 
they placed me onto, you know, neck brace, body brace. I was on a stretcher. And I just remember it at that point, I had nothing on and they were about to move me. And I just kind of had the, the idea. I was like, Hey, are you able to cover me up a little or like bit? You were naked? Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the crew that was there, he kind of chuckled. He's like, okay, if you're cracking jokes and you're worried about that, you'll be fine. So yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and then was brought to the hospital after that. Okay. It all happened, seemed very, very quickly. So that's intense. Yeah. And during this time, were you wondering where, where Jen was? Yeah. I, I've been told that I was asking about her the entire time on the roof and my other squadron members up there had the, the good frame of mind to just tell me like, Oh yeah, she's over there. There's people with her and everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, just changing my focus, you know? So did they already know that she had passed? They would have known. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That must've been really a hard thing for them as well to, to do that. Yeah. And one of the members that was up there was one of our medical personnel and he, you know, there were already members with Jen. And as soon as he got to the site, he knew and, you know, he had the instinct to then go check on me because mm-hmm. he was expecting the same result for both. Um, so I think when he got to me, it was just kind of a big relief. You know, you're like, holy crap, like you're, you're breathing. And then that member stayed with me for the rest of the day. So do they know why you were able to survive your ejection? You know, I, I think it's just a combination of the parachute having provided enough of a deceleration combined with you know the parachute didn't open it never reached steady state i shouldn't say it didn't open it didn't it didn't open to a steady state like it never completed it never finished opening no and then i think also the fact that i landed on a roof took some of the shock and i think also the fact that i landed on my seat pack just made out of fiberglass was able to all of those things combined provide a survivable situation Mm -hmm. but i you know i'll use the word miracle and just that it's it doesn't make any sense you know i Mm -hmm. shouldn't uh i shouldn't be here and i'm feel very fortunate that i am yeah we we're all glad yeah so you got to the hospital and they had a chance to look you over yep and what injuries did you end up sustaining i do remember one moment of going through being taken out of the ambulance into the emergency and kind of you're on a stretcher all you can see straight up you know and you're going through the automatic hospital doors and i just remember in that moment as i'm going through the hospital doors like holy crap your life has just changed forever you Mm -hmm. know so that was a bit of a realization of like holy crap you're here you know and uh the injuries that uh i was told at that uh time were that i had broken three vertebrae and just shattered a bunch of bones on my feet was basically the result wow yeah what was the recovery like from that long you know i I don't think they knew just due to the communication between the hospital and perhaps the military medical side I think the injuries were maybe described or perceived differently. So I think at one point they, uh, they had booked, you know, an aircraft to come pick me up just over a week later. And the idea was like, oh, we're not going to send him home until he can walk on a plane or something like that. And that was absolutely not going to happen. You know, like I was, 
on a stretcher that entire time. Yeah. You know, and my mom is a medical professional. And I think the only reason why I was actually sent home at that time, eight days later, was because my mom was going to be with me for a couple months at home. I had a full hospital set up in my room, mm-hmm. a hospital bed. And had that not been the case, I would have likely stayed in the hospital for quite a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. But it was eight days and then you were able to, because of that, were able to go home. Yeah. That, you know, medevac Yeah, back to Moose Jaw. And, uh, you know, one year later is where, you know, I, I was in, in a wheelchair for a long time, you know, your first six weeks or so, you're not supposed to spend much time sitting. You're supposed to be laying down for your back to heal. Mm. So graduated from the wheelchair to the walker, to crutches, to then a cane. And I remember a year later at the anniversary, I think it was the first day that I, you know, dropped the cane. I was like, I'm going to. I can now walk without the cane and, you know, with great difficulty. And I think after a couple of weeks, I was like, no, I still need the cane first. So <laughs> another six months later, I still, you know, I still have the cane at home uh, on the odd time that I do need it. Cause there's the odd bad day where I still need it. Oh, well, but, uh, cause I basically don't have cartilage in my right foot anymore. So there'll always be a bit of an issue, but, yeah. uh, manageable and I'm doing everything that I can for it to be as functional as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So if we take it back a little bit to when you were still in hospital Mm -hmm. and the the day of or the following days, when and how did you find out that Jen had passed? It was that night. I feel like I knew after a while, you know, I was in the emergency room kind of asking uh, other personnel if Jen was there or there'd be other people coming in with their medical emergency on a stretcher. And I was noticing that none of them they were saying was Jen. So I was like, either she's completely fine yeah. or not, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think it was probably like eight o'clock at night, different people cycled through from the unit. And then it was our snowbird one at the time that came in and he delivered the news. And, you know, at that point I already knew. Um, and even just overhearing them in the hallway, like I heard a bit of a whisper, like, does he know? And so... Yeah. So once you found out that Jen had passed away, what effect did that have on you mentally and and the crash itself? You know, I I don't think my heart rate went below 130 beats a minute for maybe 72 hours. You know, at that point, you don't even fully know what your situation, you know, there's a lot going through your mind. You, You don't know if you're going to be able to walk again. You don't really know what has happened. You know, you're in a, you're on a lot of drugs. Yeah. I I don't know how to answer that. Just uh, what effect it had on you mentally. That's your short term, but in the long term, how did you find that this has affected you? Oh, it's been the single most difficult thing in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And how have you healed since? Because you're back flying with the snowbirds. Yeah. Obviously, there's been a degree of healing, and yeah. obviously, there's a part of this that will never go yeah. away and will never be better. Yeah. But how have you healed from it? I don't know that you ever really heal from it. I think you just learn how to live with it. Mm. You know. And how have you done that? With a lot of mental health help. Yeah. And uh, the forces has been, uh, you know, they set me up with someone from Kamloops that has able to uh, help quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. So once you had some time to physically heal 
and you spend a lot of time in recovery. So you had a lot of time to think, mm -hmm. did you know right away that you wanted to get back into flying? Yeah, that was one of my first questions. I asked the doctor that night. I just kind of wanted to know, I was like, do I need to, am I being told right now that I'm, you know, never going to walk again, never going to fly again. I just kind of said like, how is this looking? Just cause I felt, you know, that it was a, it was pretty bad day to begin with. Let's just get everything out of the way. Like what else do I need to, to be prepared for and accept? And he right away said, he's like, you know, I, I've seen injuries in some cases that were worse in a helicopter crash that they were able to fly again. So he said, you know, I can't speak to your, how are you going to recover? But I think you could make a recovery to the point of being able to fly again. And how did that make you feel? That was motivation to push for that to happen. What was it like for you to get back into flying after the crash? Did you feel like the military encouraged you to get back into the cockpit? Very much so. Yeah. You know, the chain of command, the whole team have been there for me and with me throughout. You know, I was posted to the transition center mm -hmm. and then back to the snowbirds this year, but I never really left the team is how it has felt anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, two years after the fact, I was able to get a passenger approval. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea was just to see, you know, before they allowed me to fly an aircraft again, they just want to see how it is to fly in a military aircraft again. So I flew my first flight with Eric Temple, Snowbird 10, just around Moose Jaw. So you're right back into a tutor? Right back into a tutor. Yeah. And it, you know, put a smile on my face. It felt like, I was, you know, at home again. So I just knew from that flight, I was like, okay, this is, this is good. I need to keep doing this. So that's so good. So you had no trepidations, no lingering fears from being back in that cockpit. No, I think there's, there always are those things, but I think my trauma doesn't have to do, I haven't associated it to flying. I, you know, I've definitely associated it to, uh, to loss. So I think that bit. I, uh, I'm always going to have challenges with, but when it comes to flying, that's when I can put everything else aside and just concentrate on flying. And that's in my happy place. I'm so happy for you that that's <laughs> the way it's worked out. Yeah. I feel fortunate. Yeah, you are. What advice would you give to young pilots in the RCAF who may have to recover from tragedy in the line of duty? That the Canadian armed forces have the resources available and are there for you free to do your recovery. I, I don't think I'll say anything more than that other than the system's there for you and it works. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. People who've listened to the show will know that I've gone through my own mental health issues while in mm -hmm. the military mm -hmm. and I can't say enough good things about the care I've received. And yeah. especially you can look at it a couple of ways. Mm -hmm. My experience has been to care about you as a person. You're also an asset. So they have a vested interest mm -hmm. in you getting better. Yep. So people who are afraid that it's going to be a system that doesn't look out for them. It's yep. just a misconception as far as I've experienced personally. Affirm. I'd like to wrap up this tough topic by remembering Jen. What do you want people to know about her? She was a force to be reckoned with. I think uh, I admired her. I, you know, we all did. Just working with her and watching her through, you know, the previous ejection and through other challenges with the squadron and, you know, op inspiration, it really made me feel like anything was achievable. It was kind of like, you know, the attitude of, you know, seeing all the barriers and seeing how something could not happen. You know, that was not part of her language. It was always like, well, this is happening. You know, we're going to find a way for this to happen and let's do it. 
So I think that has, you know, reset, you know, a mindset in me to keep going, even just when it comes to going back flying, just to never give up and just focus on the goal. And then with Jen's mindset, uh, you'll get there. I love that. So we're down to our last three questions. Yep. We ask them on every show. Yep. I think they're really great questions. Yep. I came up with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, then they must be great. What is the most important thing you do to keep yourself ready for your job? Sleep eight hours per night. Yeah. You know, that's, the, yeah, just take care of yourself. Eat well, go to the gym, sleep well. And then that gives you um, the focus and the ability to focus on uh, your job. That's what yeah. works for me. Yeah. It's a simple answer, but it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather sleep than study through the night for something, you know, divide your time accordingly for you to study when you're going to be effective at studying and then take care of yourself to be rested and able to go on to your next flight or flight test or whatever it might be. Yeah, fully agree. There's a time for studying, but you need your rest. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think makes a good pilot? I would say just a mindset of always wanting to keep learning and having new experiences, you know, different airframes, different uh, communities excel in, you know, it could be low level VFR flying or, you know, international IFR operations or more tactics, you know? So I think a good pilot should strive to learn as many things as they can to round their experience. Okay. Final question. Yep. Picture in your head someone who's listening to the show yep. who is maybe an air cadet who's interested in joining or somebody who's just applied or someone who is on their flight training right now in the RCAF. Yeah. What would your advice be to that new pilot? To never give up. It took me two and a half years. It felt like three years to, to actually join the forces. You know, I was rejected twice. So I've applied three times to to join as a pilot. You know, one was from like, one grade on my high school diploma that was like too low or something and they're like okay cool just try again next year okay and then i was rejected a second time for my eyes which when i went to my ophthalmologist he was like my machine could be off by that much any day like your 2015 vision you're you're good to go so sometimes there's little bumps in the road that if you just keep pushing through them they might just be tiny bumps so if you see any obstacles just keep going right on Okay, Rich, that's going to wrap up the interview for the audience. I think it's kind of a cool thing to note that we're sitting here in my basement in Portage La Prairie. Rich is in his red snowbird flight suit <laughs> because he has taken time out of a day where he's in the middle of coordinating a show here in Portage La Prairie for the staff and family members at 3CFFTS. So he's a extremely busy person, but he's still taking the time out to be here today. And I'm really thankful for that. But I'm also thankful, Rich, that you're willing to open up to us today about a really tough topic in your life. Absolutely. And it really means a lot to me that you're willing to share that with us. And I'm really excited for Canadians to hear your story and to learn a little bit more about Jen as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Cheers. Okay. That's going to wrap up our chat with Rich about his time on the Snowbirds, as well as his journey after the Snowbird 11 crash and losing Jen Casey. Remembrance Day is fast approaching and it can be a difficult day for many of us. For my multi-engine instructor and friend, Mike Hool, it's the hardest time of the year. For our next episode, we'll sit down with Mike and talk about his experiences over seven tours in Afghanistan, as well as taking part in the repatriation of 13 fallen Canadians. 
Do you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard? Or would you or someone you know make a great guest on the show? You can reach out to us at thepilotprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Did you know that for each episode, we make an exciting video featuring footage taken by our aircrew and serving members? You can check them out on all social media at at podpilotproject. Check us out and give us a follow. As always, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us and listening to the show. And we'd like to ask you for your help with the big three. That's like and follow us on social media, share with your friends, and follow and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Keep the blue side up. See ya! Engineer, shut down all four. Shutting down all four engines.